0: I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Right, so it's David Wigley. And it's Martin Shipton. So, David, you are a giant of Welsh politics, one might say. You've been around for an awfully long time. But of that course, sounds like an obituary, if I so. Well, I think you've probably still got a bit of life in you yet. So, tell us about your, your roots, David, because many people, uh, rather counterintuitively, would not realise that you were actually born in Derby. Yes,
1: yeah, so that was an accident, as I tell everybody, an accident in terms of my parents happened to be there during the wartime. My father was from Montgomeryshire and my mother from Pulele. Um And the name Wigley came to Montgomeryshire, ironically enough, In the 16th century, sometime probably between 1540 and 1560, when there was a land clearance from Derbyshire, and a couple of hundred people were put out to grass in Montgomeryshire, and the original Wigley was one of them, and the rest is history, as they say. No, I I was brought up outside Carnarvon from the age of four, and I, I live now next door to the house in which I was brought up all those years ago. That's remarkable. So...
0: How did you get involved in politics?
1: In the 1950s, I think there were two or three issues that focused one's mind. I was then, at the end of the 50s, a teenager. We had the Troeran Valley um, incident where Liverpool had decided they wanted to commandeer a valley to get the water, to sell it to industry at a profit, turf out the farmers and the villagers and close down the school and the chapel. And every Welsh MP bar one had voted against it. And it brought it home to us how powerless we were as a country to protect our own communities and our own own heritage in a part of Wales like Capel Celyn, the village that was drowned. That was one issue. Another issue was the Welsh language. Clearly, in my part of Wales, it was then about 90% Welsh-speaking, it's still well over 80% Welsh-speaking, and uh, in the county council, my father was working originally for Merionethshire uh, county council, there in Carnarvonshire. In Merioneth, every councillor spoke Welsh at that time. They would be outside a meeting speaking Welsh to each other, and all the officers. They go into the meeting and all speak in English to each other. Then back out of the meeting, speaking Welsh. Welsh had no status at all. It was banned. It had been banned in 1536 by the Act of Union, and it was still banned at that time. So that was a second um, element that um, came came together. And the third was the economic one, and that hit me particularly. Hard. It was a time of the rundown of the slate quarries in the same way as the rundown of the coal industry in the 50s and 60s. And the slate industry in northwest Wales had employed almost 20,000 people at the time of the First World War and it was running right down in the late 50s and early 60s. And there were marches of unemployed quarrymen coming down from the Nantla Valley past our house into Carnarvon. It was a, a factor that came home to me as I saw so many of my contemporaries having to go to look for work away from Wales. And there was no public policy at a time that Macmillan was saying you've never had it so good. There was no public policy to try and ensure that young people in Wales would have a future in Wales. And that was certainly one of the elements that drove me. Those three things taken together uh, were what made my politics. And if Westminster was not prepared to serve Wales, then To my mind, the only choice we had was to do it for ourselves. That meant getting full self-government, to get control over the levers for the economy, for the language, and to safeguard our land and heritage.
0: And at that time, did you have an equal degree of, shall we say, lack of respect for the Conservatives and Labour?
1: I was never tempted to go into either of those two parties, because they both seemed to be parties of the status quo at Westminster. I remember uh, I was sent away to school for my sins, um, and that brought me face to face with certain aspects of the English establishment, so I formed a certain judgment about them. But I remember at that time a good friend of yours, I think, Martin uh, George Thomas, coming to preach in school on a Sunday. He was president of the Wesleyan Methodist uh, Conference, if I remember, remember right. And I asked him, I had tea with him, or um, Sunday tea in the headmaster's um, uh, rooms, and I asked him, well, uh, why can't we have a parliament for uh, ourselves in Wales, uh, uh, Mr Thomas? And he said, oh, my boy, but we have a parliament. We have our own parliament in Westminster. <laughs> and uh, Clearly, um, I could see from him there was no chance for making any inroads there. And he was a representative of the Labour establishment at that time. Um, so and in any case, if you want to uh, do a job for yourself, the only moral way of doing it is by getting the uh, backup of the people of Wales, in our case, to want to do that themselves, not by sleight of hand trying to manipulate um, a system to deliver something. And therefore, I've always believed that we should um, stand up to insist on our rights. My uh, adherence to Plaid Cymru was not um, with a capital N nationalist approach. The term nationalist had been dropped from our party name after the 1945 because of the bad name that racist um, nationalism in Germany and other countries had. And to that extent, I've always seen Wales in the context of Europe, that the European structure gave a sense, a logic, for a country the size of Wales to have autonomy. Not total independence in the way that UKIP you, you look at it, because each country is interdependent. But at least to have the ability to govern ourselves in those matters where we can govern ourselves, and in those matters where we can't, that we get a full and fair
0: voice. But it's been a long, hard struggle to achieve that. Because yes, it's. <laughs> um, when you were first elected as an electorate representative in Merthyr Council um, back in what was it, 1971? Um, 72. I, I'd stood
1: election in Merioneth in 1970 as an applied candidate. That was my first exposure as a candidate. I'd been the organizer of the Carnarvon constituency in the 1964 election. I was 21 had just graduated uh, the summer off, so I worked for £5 a week as the organizer and got to know the constituency well at that time. I stood in Merioneth, where um, Eleanor, my wife, Eleanor, was from. Um, we doubled the vote, we came second for the first time, but we didn't win the seat in 1970. And my first electoral success was, as you alluded, in Merthyr Tiddeville. We'd moved in, in 1971. I was head of um, finance and administration for the Hoover Company in, in Merthyr, which employed 5,000 people. And I found myself a candidate, much to everybody's shock, and even greater shock, when they found that I won the seat. I was the only plied councillor out of 32 councillors on the old Merthyr Tidville County Borough Council, of those 27 were Labour, two were independent Labour, two were ratepayers, they might have been voting Labour for all I know, and there was me, that was the spectrum. And you know there were 24 committees on that uh, all-purpose authority, you had things like Water Committee and the Hospitals Committee and that sort of thing, Graveyards Committee, they put me on 22 of the 24 committees, clearly intending to wear me out and that I'd either lose my job um, or uh, I'd lose my constituents. The two committees they didn't put me on was industrial development and finance, the two things I knew most about, Um, but I I enjoyed my experience of being on Merthyr Council. We had the campaign to get a, a, a Welsh medium school established. There wasn't a single one in Merthyr at that time. And we ran a great campaign. To be fair, we got cooperation from um, Ted Rowlands and his wife, um, who was the new MP there, and he came on board. I think he appreciated the groundswell that was going in favour of this and thought it was better to harness it. So we made many, many friends in Murth, and we still keep in touch with many of them.
0: And I love the place, a great respect for it. And what did you learn about the workings of the Labour party at that time.
1: Well of course the Labour party had been an entrenched party of government in uh, for decades. The old generation, you could see they had very strong principles and they lived through the hard times of the 20s and the 30s. The middle generation, were uh, they understood the arguments, but they were a little bit less passionate. And some of the, the younger ones, uh, well, it was a totally different world. And the danger was, when you have a one-party state, as you had in Merthyr down all those years, is that it's far too easy for corruption to creep in and many of the people in Merton when they elected me um, as a councillor it was as a protest of what they saw and believed was corruption running there I remember this a story when Winnie Ewing, this SNP member of Parliament, was campaigning in Merthyr in the by-election. She came into the new inn and said, uh, thumped the bar and said to Ewart Davis, the um, uh, proprietor of the new, new inn, Ewert, we're going to win this. we found the most appalling corruption. It's going to be a big exposure and we're going to smash Labour. And Ewert just sat there with his hand beneath his chin on the bar and shook his head at Winnie. Al Capone wouldn't have been a tea boy in Mercer, um, And there was that perception. Now, then, it may have been unfair in some instances, but I suspect that it w- was perfectly uh, reasonable comment. I'll give you one instance, a story. I had a knock on my front door one Sunday lunchtime. we just finished lunch, and a, a person there said, um, I-, I wonder if I could have a word with you, Councillor Wigley. I said, oh, about what? Well, c- could I come in? And I said, well, about, or is there this headmastership appointment? And then he sat down and he went through a file that he'd got showing how he'd done this and done that for Mertha, And he ended up and said, of course, I, I'll abide by the protocol that I'll make a contribution to the Labour Party funds. And I said, you do realise I'm applied, committee councillor. He went ashen white, slammed the thing closed and rushed out of the door without saying goodbye even. Now, that's an example. There are other instances that I, I, I had of corruption. A lot of corruption allegations um, in the vicinity of the um, planning system and that sort of thing. People expecting to get money for uh, enabling planning permissions to go ahead. But I don't want to talk Mertha down. That's the sort of problem you have in any community where you have one party government. And it's equally valid on the all Wales scale now. If you have a Labour government running for ever and a day without being challenged and without losing power, then there will always be dangers of corruption, not with the capital C, but the lower level corruption, the wheeling dealing in the background because there isn't enough challenge there. And that's why it's vitally important that in the next election for the Assembly, there is an ability to put in a new government and to kick out the old government. And apart from anything else, it'll wake up the civil servants to that reality.
0: Let's jump back to 1974, David, when you were elected to Westminster for the first time. And, of course, prior to that, Gwynvore Evans had been a Plaid Cymru MP. He won the famous by-election in 1966, but, of course, he lost his seat in 1970. So then you came in in February 1974, as did David Ellis Thomas, whose name I don't know whether you appreciate my mentioning, but, uh, well, I'm very
1: sad that David has decided to become an independent member of the Assembly. Uh, I think David had done an excellent job as the Speaker of the National Assembly. He did it for 12 years, and I think people in all parties would praise him um, on that job. And I think it's a little sad that he has felt it necessary to, for whatever reason, that he doesn't feel that he's been fully, uh, had the full opportunities to uh, use his talents and to look for a job on the fringes of a Labour government. It's sad more than anything else that a, a worthwhile career should end like that.
0: Of course, in '74, when you and he both got elected, you were in a position where you knew that you could never form part of an administration at Westminster. So what approach did you have to being applied Cymru MP? What did you think you could achieve and how would you assess whether you achieved it or not?
1: Well, of course, there are two levels on which you have to judge that. The first is on the constituency level and one is elected as a constituency member, and one's first loyalty has to be to the constituency. And therefore, in terms of trying to deliver certain things that I was pledged to deliver, whether it was in terms of uh, employment, whether it was in terms of public services, whether it was in terms of the big issue at that time, compensation for slate quarrymen who were suffering from pneumoconiosis, the coal miners were getting compensation, the slate quarrymen were not. Those issues were fundamental to holding the seat, In terms of the All Wales level and what one could uh, um, deliver down at Westminster, the Labour Government in 1974 did not have an overall majority. In 1976, they came to an agreement with the Liberal Democrats, or the Liberals as they then were, of course, to uh, have the the Liberal support up to 1978, but in the last year, in 1978-79, they did not have a majority, and in those circumstances, it was possible for us to do some bargaining on the fringes and to get things delivered for Wales, including the Slave Quarrymen's Compensation, which I was very glad that it was important in David Ellis' constituency in Merionydd, of Fesiniog, which is important in mine, um, with regard to Samberis and the Nantle Valley, And that was a way of showing that not only did we campaign on issues such as self-government, and the Welsh language, but that social issues and industrial issues were equally important to us. Because you don't want a system of government just in order to say, look, I've got a building in Cardiff and we call it a parliament. You want it there to do a job, and the the sort of job we wanted was the sort of job that delivered the social agenda for which we campaigned. And of course in the 1970s we had um, the build-up to the referendum of 1979, and we learnt one very hard lesson then that we couldn't trust the Labour Party further than we could kick them on this agenda. There were six Labour MPs, Welsh Labour MPs, who campaigned for a no vote in that referendum, including, I'm sorry to say, a colleague in the House of Lords now, Neil Kinnock. And we were in the invidious position where you had plied people walking from door to door delivering Labour leaflets when the Labour MPs themselves were going around campaigning for a different outcome. And that was appalling. and I learned many hard lessons then, lessons which I was then able to apply when I was leading the party in the 1990s to make sure we would never again fall into that trap.
0: So, of course, after the 1979 referendum, which... Was a devastating result for those who wanted to establish an assembly. It was a four to one vote against. You must have been absolutely devastated. What did you see the way forward for the national project at that time? The um,
1: interesting fact was that in the 1979 election, which followed the referendum a couple of months later, Plyde held two of its three seats. Gwynver lost Carmarthen. Gwynver was very tired by then. Gwynver was much older than we were, of course, and his, his health was a little mixed at that time. The SNP had suffered um, badly; they lost nine of their eleven seats, and that was partly because we took a different view on the vote of confidence for the Labour government in March 1979, when Labour lost by one vote. Now, then, we um, had come to a package uh, which we agreed with Labour, which included half a dozen items of importance to Wales, and we agreed to sustain them in the vote of confidence at that time, and I. That lesson was important for us, but we realised that following 1979, we would have to show an agenda for Wales. I became party leader in 1981 when Gwynevar stood down. Uh, David Ellis Thomas and I had an election, a straight fight between us, and it was very close. I I scraped in. Um, We needed an agenda that showed that we were fighting for Wales when other people wouldn't. We took instances such as the... Uh, television rights thing of course which um, uh, was one largely thanks to the stand Winver made the issue of the water charges in Wales which were scandalously high higher in Wales than elsewhere and we we're getting no recompense for the water that was being used in England we had a campaign to stop paying water rates and going to the courts and what have you I remember on the television uh, instance I, I had refused to pay my television uh, license and I went to court and uh, the court was quite embarrassed. <laughs> My mother, mother had been on the bench earlier, and her friends were uh, going to um, uh, find me. And when I came out, I went to the Plaid office in Carnarvon, and there was a crowd from the council estate at the top of Carnarvon, Sgrifogorch. And they came in after me to the office and eh, said, hello, David. Ha, they said in Welsh, I'll say it in English. Uh, so you're a crim like us now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in making stands on specific issues, I did a lot of campaigning on disability issues and succeeded in getting um, a bill through the Became the Disabled Persons Act 1981, despite the government trying to block me. Uh, an interesting procedure, very similar to what happened recently um, in Westminster, when one member could shout object and kill the, the, the bill dead. Well, the way we overcame that was to get a, a campaign running throughout not just Wales, but the UK um, in support of my bill. We used a procedure in Westminster where there's a, a device called an early day motion, and we got over half the House to sign that motion. And at that point, the government conceded that I had a majority of the House and therefore I should uh, have my bill. So there were instances like this through the 80s. And the other dimension that changed and became more centre stage was the European dimension, in that Plaid had been incredibly, incredulously, I would say, in nineteen. um, 75 referendum, had advocated voting no to Europe. I was uh, for Europe and I had to campaign against my party line at that stage, which wasn't the position I wanted to be in. But by the late 80s, or middle 80s even, the party had come around to accept that the only context in which self-government made sense was within a European context. And therefore, for us to be standing and fighting in the European elections, gave a focus um, to this issue. And side by side with that, the advent of Europe and the social chapter showed that progressive politics could be pursued in Europe. It wasn't a right-wing club as people like um, Tony Benn and Michael Foote used to claim back in 1975, it had a social dimension which in fact was ahead of the dimension that Margaret Thatcher and the Tories would be pursuing here. And therefore we could use the European argument again on a social level um, to win some of the arguments that we felt were necessary and um, for Wales. And as that developed, there came a change in the understanding amongst Welsh electors, I believe, of where Wales fitted in. It wasn't that the sun always rose and set at Westminster, that was the beginning, beginning and end of everything to do with Wales. That there were tears for powers. That The European principle of subsidiarity, that decisions should be taken as close as possible to the community they affected, that became centre stage. Um, and therefore, the idea of Wales within a Europe became very much more acceptable. The other dimension that we worked hard on then, leading through to the 1990s, was of course the Green Agenda and uh, Conor Davis got elected in Westminster um, for Keredigion, um on a joint Plaid Green Ticket, and that was something which again opened people's eyes to the idea that we were a party that talked about more than just language and self-government, that we wanted uh, a reasonable set of policies that respected the environment as well.
0: So then we move into a new era where the Labour Party was developing perhaps more of a Wales-centric agenda than had been the case previously. In 1997, there was a general election with Labour elected on a promise to have a new referendum on the possibility of setting up an Assembly. Did you think at that time that you were closer than at any time in your life of achieving your aim of seeing Wales uh, have the possibility of becoming a self governing leader? Well,
1: a lot of things had changed between 1979 and 1997. Um, not only had the European dimension become very much more of a, of a backdrop, um, also we'd had four Sectors of State for Wales in succession that weren't even Welsh constituency MPs Peter Walker, David Hunt, William Hague, and then particularly John Redwood who didn't identify in any shape or form with Wales, and Wales didn't identify with him. However able a man he was, he was totally inappropriate. We had the development of government by quango, nominated bodies, not only bodies like the Welsh Development Agency, which actually did a very good job of work. There were bodies like Housing Wales, Ty Cymru, and a whole plethora of quangos, about 20 of them in, in total, that weren't directly answerable to any tier of elected government. So for democracy to work, You needed to get that answerability for the Quangos and you had the um, um, argument in terms of who governs Wales. Is it a governor general type person like John Redwood or the people of Wales themselves? That made it very much easier to argue the case um, for an elected tier of government. Yet when the referendum came, of course, it was very close. The one thing that we did fundamentally different in the run up to the 1997 referendum was that we insisted before we gave support in any shape or form to the proposals the Labour Party were putting forward that Labour should show themselves that they had the full united backing of all their MPs. And Ron Davis saw the sense of this as well. And he was willing to play uh, along with us on that. And in fact, by the um, end of the summer of 1997, before the referendum in September, he had every Welsh Labour MP on board, apart from Cleo Smith, um, who insisted on uh, holding out. And I withheld, um, Plaid withheld, our support until the last week in July. And it was only at that point did we decide that we would, in fact, support a yes vote. In other words, we'd flushed out Labour so different to the experience in the 70s. Now, in
0: 1999, the first Assembly election came along and Plaid Uh, remarkably won 17 seats. Did that exceed your expectations? (laughs) Yes, it most certainly did. Although I had, towards the end of the campaign,
1: uh, I asked a colleague in the head office to put a bet um, down that we would have between 16 and 18 seats. And we got fantastically good odds for that. And I said, well, put £100 down in my name. And it didn't happen. <laughs> I could have won two or three thousand pounds of that, which of course I would have d- donated to the <laughs> campaign fund. Um, but uh, towards the end of the campaign, it was clearly going our way. Initially, uh, our objective was to ensure that we were at the very least the second party, and hopefully that we stop Labour being in overall control. That uh, appeared to be quite a challenge when the campaign started. But in many ways, the people of Wales were looking at the Assembly campaign as a context in which Plaid made sense. We had the experience of talking about the needs of Wales, developing policies that were founded in Wales, rooted in Wales, and people were willing to give us a chance. It was also a a situation where Labour had won a landslide election in 1997 on a UK level, Tony Blair, and it was a little bit midterm in 1999 and any government, however popular they may have been originally, lose a little bit of the shine, and they haven't developed policies strong enough to make a difference, Um, uh, and therefore we benefited from that. Labour had also, um, from their point of view, uh, very unfortunately, lost Ron Davis as their leader. Alan Michael didn't have the charisma, although he was a a perfectly competent uh, minister in Um, Labour governments in London, he didn't have the shine that was needed to project a a new face and a new start, a fresh new beginning, a new dynamic, and that sort of thing. And on top of that, he had not been elected by the Labour Party themselves in Wales. Um, He was um, Tony Blair's person. Um, There was an election which was regarded as inadequate by many people in the Labour Party, And that's why when Roderick Morgan eventually took over, it was as if Labour were then being given what they wanted in Wales. But in 1999, there was some frustration. The result came as quite a shock um, to me uh, as it came through. It appeared at one point on the morning of the Friday after Thursday voting that it could have been a landslide um, to to Plaid that we were winning not only seats like Rhondda and Llanelli and Islun, but we were doing very well indeed in seats like the Cynon Valley, within a few hundred votes of winning it as it transpired. But when that was happening, I had the fear of God run up me because it became apparent that we might be asked to form a government. And quite frankly, Plaid wasn't ready for that. We'd been a small opposition party in a Westminster context. We hadn't um, run more than uh, Gwynedd Council, I think, uh, outside um, that, and we were not ready for that level of responsibility. But we had the chance to become the first official opposition. I'd already negotiated with Ron Davis that the main opposition party should nominate the, the presiding officer. So David S. Thomas had that responsibility. And um, we formed um, a very strong opposition party. We had first-class people there. There were people like Professor Phil Williams uh, of Aberystwyth uh, University, an outstanding scientist. You had people like Canuck Davis. Um, whose campaigning in Westminster on green issues had really made a mark. And it, you had people experience the local government. Pauline Jarman had been uh, leading the council, people like Janet Davis. It was a very, very strong team, fresh new faces coming through, which I think caught the imagination um, of the people of Wales that we were competent um, to be at least um, challenging Labour to be government.
0: There's some irony in the fact, uh, David, that in 1999... Plaid actually had a higher share of the vote than the SNP did
1: mm. uh, yes.
0: at that time in the first Scottish Parliament election. Yes. And yet, if we compare the performance in electoral terms since Plaid Cymru with that of SNP, SNP is streets ahead. It's obviously been forming government. It's now in the third term. Why is it that uh, the SNP proved to be so successful when Plaid hasn't been
1: I think in the initial years of devolution of the two countries, both Plaid and the SNP had a a bit of a struggle. And in the 2003 election, we didn't do as well in Wales, and the SNP didn't do all that well in in Scotland. The SNP came through in the period 2006 to 2007, with the 2007 election, and they did so. Alex Salmond had taken over, and he brought in a professionalism there. Um, He had first-class advisers and the party was perhaps a more disciplined party than Plaid Cymru. They were prepared to stick to uh, agreed guidelines right through Scotland and to have a single-mindedness of purpose to become the largest party, which they did just. If I remember right, they had one more seat than um, Labour did in that election. 2007. 2007. But it was enough to form a minority government, and having done that, they could then show what they could achieve. Now, had Plaid in the period 2000, um, 2001, 2002, been in a position to form a government and to show what we could do, I have no doubt we could have done equally well. The situation in Scotland is very different to the situation in Wales, and one of the things that they had in Scotland was a much stronger established civil service. I think that we in Wales, the Welsh office was in Westminster terms, fairly near, which was 1964 to come into being, and it was still struggling to get the level of competence that was needed. And the Devolution Act that we had in Wales didn't give the same powers it did in Scotland. By now, we've got those powers, but it's taken a long time to get there. And in many ways, Wales now is in the position that Scotland was immediately after that first referendum. So the 2021 election, when it comes, could be the election that really tests plied are we going to be a party ready for government at a time when the National Assembly has the powers fit to be a legislature for Wales?
0: And what do you think the party needs to do in policy terms, if you like, to persuade the people of Wales that uh, Plaid Cymru is the party to vote for?
1: Well, as it was once famously said by an American president, I think it's the economy, stupid. I think we have to show that we are talking sense, that we know what we're talking about in terms of economic regeneration and that we can actually deliver. Now then, if I can wind the clock back, r- way back to my early days, when we established the Plaid Company Research Group and published an economic plan for Wales in 1970, geared on growth centres, uh, scientific inventions, um, firing uh, the concept of building up a, uh, a network of small companies. This was Phil Williams's thinking. He'd got it in Cambridge. He was involved in Cambridge University, when the first steps were taken towards establishing the uh, Cambridge Research and Park. That park is now 156 acres. There are 4,700 companies there employing 60,000 people on the very same principles as we had in our economic plan for Wales back in 1970. And were we to go about it again in a systematic manner, the details would now be different, of course, because times have moved on. But we are as capable now of building up our economy in Wales as we were back then. All we need is the power to do so. And we have to take the approach which sadly the Labour government in Cardiff uh, stepped away from, of using people in industry to help develop industry, the way the Welsh Development Agency used to do so, which was so stupidly kicked into the long grass by Roderick Morgan's government. There is uh, the ability in Plaid Cymru to get these ideas across, because Plaid Cymru is the only party whose roots are in Wales to serve Wales primarily, more than anything else. And I believe that when that idea can get across to the electorate, if the the concepts are right and the projection is right and the dynamic and enthusiasm uh, are there, then we can appeal to the people of Wales and get support just like the SNP did in Scotland. Our path will be a different one. And goodness knows now that we're outside the European Union framework, what the detail will be. But nonetheless, if we are to secure a future for our communities, then it's by our own efforts that's going to be done. And it's up to us in Plaid Cymru to give a lead in that direction.
0: And yet, of course, you alluded then to the fact that we will soon be out of the European Union as things appear. That's going to pose enormous challenges to the Welsh economy and to the wider economy of the UK as a whole. And I know that you've got very serious concerns, uh, David, about the fate of manufacturing industry in Wales as well, a consequence of this. Well, I do. I do indeed,
1: because manufacturing in Wales um, has been built up in the post-coal and steel era. It's been built up by attracting inward investments to Wales. There were at one time 50 Japanese companies in Wales, for example, 200 American companies. Now then, they came to Wales, uh, came to the United Kingdom, in order to sell to the European market. And therefore, at this point in time... We still don't know what will be the details of any Brexit agreement. The Welsh White Paper that was published jointly by Carwyn Jones and Leanne Wood, I believe, gave a blueprint of what is possible even within the context of Brexit, that it is possible by having single market access, by having a customs union type relationship that avoids tariff barriers, and by being able to allow companies uh, that are manufacturing in Wales to sell without physical barriers, slowing down the supply chain between Wales and continental Europe, then in economic terms, if we secure that, then it is still possible to build on those same principles. If we turn our backs and try to make the United Kingdom a fortress island, turning our back on the rest of the world, we are doomed. And people are going to find their standard of living going down, Fewer jobs available, young people migrating around the world to look for a a brighter future, and we will have shot ourselves in our own feet. And even at this late point in time, we have to use all the powers that we've got to salvage what we can out of the Brexit mess in which we've landed.
0: I think it may be the case that you've got um, a company that you were involved with which... uh could itself face spectacular challenges as a consequence of Brexit? Well,
1: all manufacturing companies do. I I think in Wales, there are three uh, companies in Wales that have been hitting some of the headlines. You've got the Airbus situation, you've got the motor industry, Toyota and Fords, uh, uh, selling to European markets, and you've got Siemens, which is a case in point. Uh, I know a lot about the Siemens factory in Llanberis. It started off as a company that a colleague of mine, Osborne Jones, and I... And a, a number of other colleagues helped build up from nothing. And it's now employing some 400 people in Llanberis. Now then, uh, what has been stated by um, senior people in Airbus um, and in the motor industry um, and indeed um, in Siemens, is that if we're outside the European Union without any single market access, without um, a customs union they are having to f- face a customs barrier, and a barrier that every component and every goods that are shipped across a, um, uh, through a port or through the air have to be checked out, that is going to make life impossible. And what I fear is that companies such as these will then um, start looking for their future, not closing their factories in Wales down overnight, but when it comes to new investment, their new investment will go to continental Europe. And that could be a body blow. It would, for me, if anything happened to that Lamberish factory, it would be something that would go very clear, uh, hit me in, in, in my heart. Because so much effort has gone in by local people into building up um, a star employer that's there now. This is what happens when we have decisions taken without any um, recognition of the economic reality facing manufacturers. And we've got to still fight while there's any chance at
0: all to reverse that and to get a reasonably sensible outcome. You've been a member of the House of Lords since 2011, uh, David, and Plaid Cymru has never really been comfortable with uh, this second chamber in the form that it has Mm. at the moment. If my memory serves me correctly, the reason why you were happy to join the House of Lords was because at that time there was this rather unusual legislative scenario affecting legislation from the Assembly, which... Um, was still effectively controlled by uh, Westminster in terms of uh, what laws it could put forward, so it was thought at the time by Clyde that it was appropriate to rescind the long-standing policy of, re- of abstention from the House of Lords. But I can't imagine that as a Democrat you're particularly comfortable with the institution as it stands. What would you like to see happen to it in the future.
1: Well, can I make it clear that uh, if somebody suggested to me back in 1974 when I first got elected that I would end up in the House of Lords, I'd have chopped their heads off. And I dare say my predecessor, Gronwy Roberts, would have done the same, but he landed there. And the one before him, David lloyd would equally as a youngster, have uh, done likewise. There are two levels on which I answer that question. The first is that wherever decisions, meaningful decisions, are taken that influence the well-being of Wales... Wales should have a voice there. Now, then I find it highly unacceptable that this is an undemocratic institution. But nonetheless, there are decisions taken here that are material to Wales, as has been seen in the debate on the Brexit bill um, this year. And there are many opportunities um, in different contexts to raise the well-being of Wales. There have been Government of Wales bills through in the last uh, two or three years. And had I not been uh, here, it would have been left to a a handful of well-minded people from other parties that have the well-being of Wales at heart, but there wouldn't have been applied voice. And we hear very often when matters relating to Scotland arise, that there is derision, that there is no voice from the SNP, who are the government of Scotland. Now, the way of answering that, of course, is to uh, get the place uh, with a democratic mandate. And I, was, I would prefer that it was fully elected, but I was willing to accept the white paper that came out some five years ago suggesting 80% elected and that the 20% that were not elected would be chosen by an independent commission on the basis of their experience. Mm-hmm. Now, then, we are nowhere near getting that at the moment, and uh, I think there's a very real question as to whether Plaid Cymru can play a meaningful role here with uh, a single voice. And David Ellis Thomas, of course, who didn't come in as a Plaid Cymru peer. He came in as a cross in the first place. Uh, I'm here by myself now as far as Plaid is concerned. And if I'm go- going to do a job for Plaid in Wales, then there needs to be a team here, a team analogous in size to the size that we have in the House of Commons. We have four members there now. You can ask the question, does the United Kingdom need a second chamber? which is a valid question. And in the size of the workload that is handled by Westminster, uh, I think the answer has to be yes. There are small countries like New Zealand and Latvia who manage perfectly well on a unicameral basis. And I think that Wales, as a self-governing country, would likewise. But the workload at Westminster, because so much of the legislation is centralised here, there has to be a facility to handle it. And uh, to my mind, there has to be reform. There has to be democratic reform here. And at some point in time, if there's no democratic reform, no doubt Plyde will um, consider afresh its position in regard to the Second Chamber and decide whether or not it's worth having representation here.
0: Thank you very much indeed, uh, David Wigley. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.